If you would, please take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45. We'll look at the whole chapter together in just a moment. This is my last sermon in Isaiah for a while. Uh, Not my last sermon for a while. Next week, I'm going to preach a state of the church sermon. I usually do that once a year. It usually happens the week of the congregational meeting in late June, but I won't be here for the congregational meeting in late June. So, um, Isaiah this week, something a little different next week, and you can look forward to summer in the Psalms uh, starting two Sundays from now. I'll let Kurt and others uh, say more about that as it gets closer. But Isaiah chapter 45, hear the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I equip you though you do not know me that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides Him. Truly, you are a God who hides Himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together, but Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God. Who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. 
Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word. Oh God, you speak clearly and you speak powerfully. Would you speak to us in a way that penetrates our hard hearts and our ears that don't want to listen? Oh Father, would you speak to us for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Habakkuk learned, be careful what you wish for. Habakkuk, which is pronounced however you want, as long as you say it with confidence. He was a prophet about a hundred years ago. Uh, Excuse me, a hundred years after Isaiah. That sounds better. (laughs) A hundred years after Isaiah. And one day Habakkuk was fed up with the wickedness of God's people, so he prayed, God, how long will you let this continue? Won't you punish these people? Won't you stop them? So God in Habakkuk 1 said, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. To which Habakkuk responded, Wait, what? Something like that. He said, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil, why are you going to do this? Why are you going to let an even more wicked nation punish us? Habakkuk wanted judgment, but he he didn't want an even more evil nation to judge them. He wanted God's justice, you might say, on his own terms. And in not so many words, God responded, I have better plans, Habakkuk. Now Habakkuk eventually came around in chapter 3, but it was a rude awakening. He learned to be careful what he wished for. He also learned that God can sovereignly use evil for his own good, and that when God speaks a blessing, he speaks clearly to his people. You see that same lesson in Isaiah 45, which deals with God's ungodly servant named Cyrus. Three points today. The first one is this. What the ungodly meant for evil... God meant for good news. What the ungodly meant for evil, God meant for good news. Verses 1 through 7. After Joseph was sold into slavery and falsely imprisoned, not to mention being victimized by the theft of his coat of many colors, he said this to those brothers that sold him into slavery, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are, Today, that's Genesis 50, verse 20. What perspective, humility, what mercy from Joseph. But what an amazing God who is sovereign, who is faithful in spite of man's evil and all of that. 
Now back to this passage. Cyrus is the ungodly king of Isaiah 45, who's mentioned here, who conquered the kingdom. We should say would conquer. Who would conquer the kingdom, who previously conquered Israel and exiled her. He doesn't show up, you see, until 150 years after Isaiah 45. But he was an evil, rampaging king, as these verses show. Fun fact, some historical sources show that Cyrus acknowledged the sovereignty of God in world affairs. But other artifacts show him giving the same praise and credit to pagan gods like Marduk and others. Is this proof that history is bunk? That the Bible is unreliable, untrustworthy? Or is it proof that Cyrus was a polytheist who worshipped whatever god he felt like? And while God did not approve of his lifestyle, does that mean that God will not use him, cannot use him? Verse 1 says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. Not only will God use this one named Cyrus, God will call him his anointed, a term normally reserved for Hebrew kings, Barry Webb explains, Cyrus was only a temporary Messiah used by God for a very specific task at a time when the house of David was in total disarray. And what's that very specific task? Verse 1 simply talks about him conquering foreign nations. Verse 2, more the same. I will go before you, God says, and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. But verse 3 reveals one purpose. Verse 3, I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. Twice in verses 4 and 5, it will say of Cyrus, though you do not know me. So what gives here? God said that all this, all of it is so that Cyrus might know that the Lord calls him by name, but Cyrus never fully acknowledged God. God provides evidence of Cyrus's guilt, his failure to acknowledge God as God. But that's not the only purpose that God mentions here. You see, even though verse 1 says that God speaks all this to Cyrus, Isn't that more of a figure of speech since Cyrus wasn't alive yet? Who does God really want to hear these words? Who was the intended audience of Isaiah's other messages? How about God's weary people? Some of whom had wandered and were weary for that reason. Some of whom were weary on the path of obedience. Because what is it that God says next? Verse 4. For the sake of my servant Jacob, in Israel my chosen, I call you by your name, he says to Cyrus, to Cyrus. I name you though you do not know me. Evil Cyrus has been raised up for Israel's good. Isaiah doesn't spell all this out in this verse, but he said quite a bit in Isaiah 44, Cyrus would rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. He didn't do it with his own two hands, but he enabled it. He would send the exiles home because Cyrus was on a religious toleration kick, you might say, fueled by his polytheism. You could think of him like a a very ancient version of Oprah. You get to worship your God, and you get to worship your God. 
Some of you got that. Maybe not everyone. Was he, was he noble? Was he godly? No, but God's people still went home. And of course, that wouldn't come for years. And all that didn't quite make sense yet to Isaiah's original audience. And if it didn't make sense yet, neither would the next verses. Verse 5 and 6, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. God's Cyrus plan, as one person calls it, it had a purpose for Cyrus. Cyrus didn't realize it. God's Cyrus plan had a purpose for Israel, but they at this point were struggling to see it through a glass dimly. And God's Cyrus plan had a purpose for the whole world. But could anyone imagine this? What was to unfold? God would use one pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, to exile his people and scatter them. God would use another pagan king, Cyrus, to send his people home, at least partially. And God would use another pagan king, Pontius Pilate, as well as others, to atone for the sins of his people who would then, his people, spread this message of good news to every tribe, tongue, and nation among whom they were already scattered. Would they have believed it? if God had spelled it out like that back then? Would they have believed that what the ungodly meant for evil, God meant for good, so that the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ might spread from east, the rising of the sun, to the west? My hand motions were backwards, but you get it. All this reminds me of a favorite John Piper quote. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. Was Israel aware in 700 BC what God was doing when, as, it, uh, as it pertained to Cyrus, multiple foreign nations, the exile, the discipline of his people, as well as the eventual restoration of his people that God was planning? I'm going to say no, not fully. Uh, they might have been aware of three things that God was doing, maybe four. Probably not all of that. And we should remember that as we watch history and God's providence unfold because we don't know all that He is doing. We know that He intends to work it together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, Romans 8.28. Derek Thomas says it this way, if God has plans for the future, and he does, we shouldn't complain about the present. If we don't like what he is doing in the present, it's because he hasn't yet finished. It's one of two books that my old professor has written on Isaiah, hat tip to Alex Funky for recommending one of them to me. But if we don't like what he's doing in the present, it's because he hasn't yet finished. So not only do we see what the ungodly meant for evil, God meant for good, for good news, but we also see, secondly, what God's people despised, God meant for freedom and restoration. What God's people despised, He meant for freedom and restoration. Verses 8 to 13. God is going to use Cyrus for good, to send His people home, to give them a hope, a future, a foretaste of all of that. Now what happens next? 
confusing at first. Verse 8 sounds like it is a, a word from God, a promise of blessing, but some people think God's people responded to it with impatience, like they wanted these blessings to shower down right now. On one level, that's not wrong. We should pray, and we should pray with urgency and expectancy. We should want revival in our hearts, and we should want it right now. But if that proper urgency fades into what you see in verse 9, then, then there's a problem. Verses 9 and 10, God is speaking to His people. He says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, With what are you in labor? Now some of these comments are not just impossible, they're improper, or they're improper and impossible. You get the idea. Pots can't talk to the potter. A clay pot can't say, hey, why did you shape me this way? <clears throat> but even if they could, they'd be wrong to object to the actions of their maker. And the implication here is that's what Israel's doing. They're objecting to God's methods, to God's use of Cyrus. Isaiah is almost anticipating what will be in the future. You see, Israel had a lot of national and ethnic pride. Countless sources say this, and again, on one level, that's not, not all bad. Patriotism is a good thing, properly understood. But Acts 1 verse 6 is exhibit A, that Israel had too much national and ethnic pride. Why does that matter? Because that pride probably explains the reaction to God's plans, God's deliverer, God's temporary Messiah. Because if God used a Gentile to deliver Israel, a non-Jew, then they would continue to be subject to Gentile rulers. It's not what they wanted. Alec Moitier writes, there would be no sovereign state, no Davidic revival. The Cyrus plan was the death knell <clears throat> to all such hopes. Remember, they couldn't see what God was doing. They could scarcely imagine that God would use their exile, their dispersion to, to create a global network for the gospel in the first century. Think about it. Jewish synagogues spread throughout the Roman Empire, convenient places for Paul and others to talk about the fulfillment of the Old Testament through the ultimate Messiah named Jesus. They don't know what God is up to, not exactly, but they don't like it. God is making them weak so that they can find their strength in Him. You might say they think they could plan those 10,000 things that God is doing better than God. They have forgotten that there are no black holes in God's providence, as one person says. So as God repeats His blessings, God is also going to put them in their place so that they can appreciate who He is and how great He is after anticipating these, these objections that they have to the way He is doing things. Verse 11, Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the One who formed Him, Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. God's reminding them He is the King of the universe. No one can compare to Him. No God besides me, he says numerous times. No rivals, no competitors. Familiar theme to Isaiah. A theme that's 
occasionally meant to humble us, put us in our place, but also meant to encourage us. Because who are we talking about? We're talking about our God, our heavenly Father, the one who can move heaven and earth to help us, his children. And as if that is not enough, verse 13, I have stirred him up. Who's the him? It's the guy we've been talking about before. He's talking about Cyrus once again. I have stirred him up in righteousness and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. God stirred up Cyrus. God is behind it all. He's using Cyrus's evil for his own good. Like he said in Isaiah 44, Cyrus is somehow going to rebuild Jerusalem. It's as if he says, kick and fuss and whine about it if you want to Israel, but God will still bless his people. He will still restore the fortunes of Zion. Some will reject his blessings as Cyrus did, but some will taste and see that he is good. Verses 1 through 7, God reminds Israel, they, they didn't know all that he was up to, but he's up to a lot. He's up to a global purpose to bless his people. And then in verses 8 through 13, it's like he says, you may not like what you see now. You may not understand it all, but I promise it'll be good. It'll be worth it. I have not forgotten my good promises to my people. Exile, ungodly kings cannot stop me from blessing my people. Put it another way, what God's, excuse me, to put it another way, what God's people despised, God meant for their freedom and their restoration. And after all that, we finally see this. Thirdly, when God means to save and bless, God makes his plan and promise clear. Verses 14 to 25. So it's very possible God's people, 8th century BC, did not understand his plan for them in detail. It's very likely that God's people did not like the plan as they understood it. Look back at verses 9 and 10. And that's a good insight for those who are struggling with their faith right now. You may not like God's word or God's people, and it might be because you don't fully understand his word or the intentions of his people. And I would say to you, don't stop pursuing more knowledge of God simply because you come upon one or two things that you don't like, that you don't understand. Ask the hard questions. Ask why. God is not afraid of your close scrutiny. God can take it. Paul, the one who formerly persecuted God's people, he eventually got to the point where he said, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And his point is not that God could not be known at all. His point is finite humans can never fully comprehend the infinite God. I think I have my puppy all figured out by contrast. See, he likes simple pleasures. He likes to bark and dig, and bite, whether it's food, humans, shoes, or furniture. I think I have my puppy all figured out. I don't have my God fully figured out. I can see the depths of him, but I cannot see the bottom. I don't have him fully figured out, but God doesn't keep everything close to the vest either, right? Sometimes God is 
unmistakably clear. You can see that in these verses. Verse 14, Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, Surely God is in you and there is no other, no God besides Him. The point is not that Israel is the best nation and that we need to monitor the newspapers for the day when modern day Israel becomes the dominant power in the Middle East and worldwide. No. The point is one day, even the surrounding nations, which back then were by definition pagans, idol worshipers, one day the surrounding nations, those who worship other gods, one day they will recognize the true God. It's an encouragement to Israel. It's a reminder to seek Him and not the false gods, the imitations. And what you see next is Israel's model response. Verse 15, Truly you are a God who hides Himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. A God who hides Himself? Is that a, is that a rebuke? Implying that, that He's not as forthcoming as He should be? No. Alec Moitier says this means that God's ways have suddenly become clear to his people. They get it now. They know God has not forgotten them. They know that the idol worshipers will be ashamed, confused in the end, but that God's people will be saved forever, as verses 16 and 17 explain. And so from that confidence, it's followed by another statement from God. Verse 18, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. God didn't speak in secret. Francis Schaeffer said many years ago, he is there and he is not silent. Our Westminster Confession of Faith, the first chapter is about Scripture including at least two wonderful truths, two that are relevant to these verses. One is that some things are harder to understand than others. Even, even Peter says that about Paul at the end of one of his letters. Therefore, the clear passages should interpret the unclear passages. But secondly, it says the things necessary for salvation are so clear that even the uneducated can learn them with the, quote, due use of ordinary means. You don't have to be a scholar to understand the gospel, the good news, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. It is clear. It is perspicacious, which is a 25-cent word for clear. Verses 20 and 21, they're clear, aren't they? Assemble, draw near, God says, because there's only one God who can save. And in case you missed it, listen to verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. If you come to Him, you won't be ashamed, verse 17. But if you're incensed against Him, verse 23, if you despise His salvation for any reason, then you too will be ashamed. Because this is the only way to be saved. But perhaps this still isn't quite as clear as I want it to be. Because you might hear what I'm not saying this morning. You might hear this, this message, oh, it's to God's people. You might assume that they were, they were good people who had you know, done a few bad things. So all they needed was a nice apology or two, and then they'd be okay. And my friends, if you think that, you're dead wrong. 
Now, some of you know this, don't you? Because <laughs> you've been listening to Isaiah long enough. You know that his prophecies can peel the paint off the wall. And still, some of God's people didn't listen. They kept on being evil and rebellious. The whole point is that God's people, that anyone cannot be good enough, no matter how hard you try. God wanted them to see their sin, and that's not just their shortcomings, but their rebellion, so that they would see their Savior, who longed to be gracious to them. And God picked the perfect messenger, because even Isaiah knew he wasn't good enough which is why he loved God's grace so much. Wait, Isaiah wasn't good enough? I I thought he was a prophet, a good guy. I I can see how you might think that. But read Isaiah enough, you'll come across his favorite phrase. We read it today. Verse 11, the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah calls God holy more often than all the other books of the Old Testament combined. And why is that? Because once upon a time, probably early in his ministry, after he had pronounced six woes on the people of Israel in chapter 5, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. Train of his robe filled the temple. He saw a vision of a holy God, of sinless angels, angels who said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. We'll let Isaiah pick it up from here. Verse 4 of chapter 6, And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim, the angels, the burning ones, it means literally, One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. After that day, Isaiah never assumed that those people were so unholy and that those people need judgment and that those people really need to hear this sermon. From that day forward, Isaiah said, Woe is me. Woe are we, if you will. He knew he wasn't good enough. But he also knew that God's grace was big enough, great enough. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Bigger than any sin we can commit. Bigger than any sin that someone like Cyrus might commit against us. In the short term, God's purposes may not always be clear. But in the long run, as we grow closer and closer to God and to His Word, we see that His end goal is clear. We see that His gracious salvation is near. Near enough for any one of us to grasp it. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are the only God. You are the only Savior. Help us to know that. Help us to know that that is not arrogance. That is helpfulness. That is You graciously telling us the way to go that we might be saved. God be with us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.